Today's text finds the early church, the early followers of Jesus, in a radical uh, moment of disruption. It's really a radical moment of, of what we would call deconstruction, tearing down what has been, and then reconstruction, starting to discover and build what will be next. So in this moment, what's going on for them is that the forms and expectations for devotion to God in general and following Jesus in particular are undergoing tremendous change. Can anybody identify with that? Has anyone experienced a moment like that? Some of you are in that moment right now. Let me give, give an overview of what's gone on in the book of Acts so far, which is actually a continuation of Luke's story of Jesus. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, the risen Jesus gives the, his disciples a vision for what their lives will be. He says, listen, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, where life has taken you, in Judea, uh, your whole country, even in Samaria, where your mom told you to never go, but actually to the ends of the earth and all those places that your people aren't too sure about. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, and about 40 days later, the Holy Spirit comes over the disciples in a profound way. They share the story of Jesus on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people decide to give their lives to this Jesus and be baptized. 3,000 people from 14 nations. So they go from like a, a little group who's hiding out in houses to instant multicultural megachurch. a boom and then what happens in after chapters 3 through 5, there's a series of miracles. There's also some persecution. There's actually some, some physical abuse as some of the disciples are arrested for their activities. Then in uh, chapter 6, significantly, significantly, there's a radical reorganization of the church through the uplift of immigrant voices. And this restructuring leads to new inroads of transformation. They reach more new people. Um, Jewish priests begin to convert. And if I'm one of the apostles, I'm like, yo, this Jesus movement is fire. This is on fire right now. It's all happening in the nation's capital. It's the symbol, not just of the nation, but of the faith of God. It's the most visible, influential spot in the country. And again, if I'm the disciples, I start thinking, wow, right now the Jerusalem establishment doesn't believe in Jesus. But I think we can flip it. I think faith in Christ can become the dominant form of Jewish faith here in Jerusalem and in the whole nation. Right now, we're about to flip the priesthood, right? They're all going to convert. We're going to change temple worship so that Jesus is named. Jerusalem will turn to Jesus and the whole nation will follow. That's my mindset if I'm living in Acts chapter 6. Then chapter 7 comes. Persecution breaks out. It's related to culture. There was persecution before, but it gets worse. They actually start killing people. An immigrant, an outsider, speaks this profound rebuke about the cultural blinders of the dominant theology in Jerusalem, and they kill him. 
And then they begin to raid the homes where newly converted followers of Jesus are sharing space and possessions and faith. They're taking women and men to prison. People are getting hurt. They're breaking up the community. The priesthood will not convert. Temple worship will not flip. The disciples will not enjoy the privilege of worshiping God in public. They won't even enjoy the privilege of being physically safe. And they run. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them just run. The community scatters. But then something happens, right? As these believers are on the run, as they become refugees fleeing for their lives, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit goes with them. The Holy Spirit starts to show up in the places they are and lead people to Jesus. And Philip, in particular, in chapter 8, goes to the despised territory of Samaria and begins to fulfill Jesus' vision that his witnesses would be in Samaria and many Samaritans choose to follow Jesus Peter and John get in on the work, and then this happens in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It's going to appear in your chat. And so whether you want to read along with it there or uh, just close your eyes and listen, um, do what you need to do to make yourself attentive for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up. And go toward the south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot, He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus 
And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, wild and untamable God, living spirit that cannot be quenched, thank you that you are always speaking. Thank you that even when we are in a process of profound and sometimes terrifying change, you, Holy Spirit, are there with us. Hallelujah, living God. We are a lucky people. We are a chosen people. We are a beloved people. And we give you thanks and glory. In all these things, Spirit of God, speak through the Word of God to the people of God. And everybody said, Amen. I kind of used up uh, some of my everybody said's when I was praying for the children. So I'll, I'll try to knock that off now. Fear asks, who's in and who's out? Fear asks, who's in and who's out? Love asks, who's missing? Who's missing? That's not my quote. That quote belongs to a brilliant 15-year-old girl living in South Africa. Uh, Her parents are good friends of Sabrina and mine. In fact, I talk with her dad every week uh, just to catch up, pray for each other, stay in touch. Um, And my friend was sharing how how they they want their children, and parents, I think you're going to identify with this. Actually, I think we'll all identify with this. They want their children to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to follow Jesus. But they're trying to get away from forms of faith that are motivated by anxiety and control. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They're trying to to transmit faith to their children without being anxious and controlling because they know that, that God is not anxious and controlling. I mean, look at all the stuff God is letting us try, right? God's not controlling. Um, and, and furthermore, they see, they've witnessed and experienced that this type of religion can be harmful. It can be harmful. So what they've done is they've allowed their kids to be aware of their struggles. Even as they're part of church community, ministry community, they've allowed their kids to be aware of their struggles. And their genius daughter is listening to them. And she says, she just sums it up, right? She says, it's the difference between fear and love. Fear says who's in and who's out. Love says who's missing. In the text today, we can see the Holy Spirit pushes God's people towards those who are missing from Jesus' table. The Holy Spirit pushes God's people towards those who are missing from Jesus' table because love asks, who's missing? Because the whole time, the whole time the Spirit of Jesus is pushing us towards His vision of living as witnesses to His love in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, in the place that we are, 
in the place that we're from, in the place that we hate, in the place we haven't even heard of. The Spirit pushes us towards those missing from Jesus' table when the Spirit disrupts. And when the Spirit joins, and when the Spirit includes. Verse 26 says, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. The Spirit disrupts Philip. Look, things are going great in Samaria. If I'm Philip, I am so mad. I'm like... Lord, we just broke new ground. People are receiving the Holy Spirit. Peter and John just came through to make it all official with their support and their miracle working abilities. And now you're sending me away? I'm mad. Like from something, literally from something great to a wilderness road. The author is making it really clear. Luke is making it really clear. Philip is going from a place that is happening to a place that is absolutely nothing at all. Right? A strip of dirt in the middle of the wilderness. Um, so I have a planner. Okay? I spend time with it every single day. In fact, I brought it. Where is it? Yeah. I'm going to get it and show it to you. Because I love it so much. There it is. Folks, this is my planner. I pray in the morning. And this is with my journal and my copy of the scriptures. All right, those three things are all happening together. Now, I'm not actually the most gifted planner in the world, right? I don't rate high as a planful person. Um, so it's important that I work hard at it. Like, okay, this is, this is an important thing that grown-ups do is plan stuff. So I'm going to work hard at it. And so I have this planner. Um, I have goals, right? Yeah, there's, there's Alice's planner. I see you, right? I have goals for this year for this quarter, for this month, and every day I have a list of things that moves me closer to those hashtag goals. I love my planner. And when, not if, when my plans get disrupted, that's hard for me. That I don't always do well with that. Um, it, it really throws me off. In fact, I start... I, I kind of act like I've been stunned, right? And I start wandering through my day in a haze and I'm not, and I'm like pouring the coffee on my hand and just like I'm confused. Like what happened? I can no longer ep- execute a simple task because I'm so thrown off by the fact that I'm not doing what I thought I'd be doing. Is it just me? But I have to say, that the times when my plans have been disrupted, especially the big ones, have been some of the most important times in my life. They've been some of the times when I have experienced the nearness of God's presence in such a unique and special way. Amen. Now, I don't want to credit God for doing bad things. I never want to say that it was God who caused harm or who caused the tragedy or something that led to a disruption. But I will say that in those times when we are disrupted, the Holy Spirit is present. In those times when our plans change, God is present and God is always leading us towards a vision of Jesus 
that we would witness to His love everywhere. Church, it happened to us. Some of you were here in January 2017. Many of you were not because God is doing a good thing and growing us. But in January of 2017, right-wing fundamentalists disrupted our gathering. Remember this? Disrupted our gathering looking for a fight. Looking to intimidate us and prevent us from loving our Muslim neighbors. It was disruptive. But it reminded us, it reminded us that the simple acts of teaching the scripture and loving our neighbors are also acts of profound resistance. Now, most of the time the enemy doesn't come looking for us like that, but they did on that day and reminded us that those are acts of profound resistance. And in the months that followed, as we continued in our worship and as we began to build a friendship with Biko Mosque, those acts took on a holiness you could feel. We could sense God's presence with us. Look, it, it, it's happening again. It's happening right now in this time of pandemic, in this time of social distancing. And again, I would never say that God introduced all this death and suffering into the world because that is not God's MO. Okay, the, the, the creed calls her the Lord and giver of life. She's the giver of life, okay? Um, so I wouldn't say that God caused the pandemic, but I would say that this church has grown deeper in the pandemic. I would say that this church has grown stronger in the pandemic, okay? And because of that, when we do return to in-person worship, um, we will not be returning to normal. We will not do what we were doing before. So pray, pray for the staff team. Pray for the vision and ministry team in the coming months because our work right now is to do a reopening, to plan a reopening that restructures our life together in cooperation with what God has been doing here in the last year. We're not going back to normal. The Spirit has disrupted us. And, and, and we're going to want to hear from you. We're going to want to hear from you. I mean, um, yeah, I see this word in the chat here. I'm so grateful for how God has worked in, in your life, Gabi and Octavio. Glory to God. Praise God. I'm so glad, church, that we have been a place where people can meet with the living God in this pandemic. And we want to continue to cooperate with how the Holy Spirit disrupts us. Anybody else, do you have a witness in your life of the Spirit's disruption, when God has been present to meet you and lead you even, even when your expectations weren't met, especially when your expectations weren't met. Are you in the middle of disruption right now? And if you are, hear the very good news. The Holy Spirit is in it with you. And in verse 29, the Spirit disrupts and the Spirit joins and calls us to join. The Spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. The Spirit disrupts Philip, sends him into the middle of nowhere, and then calls him to join what the Holy Spirit is already doing, which in this particular case looks like running behind a chariot. 
This must have been a weird situation, right? So he's got, he's probably lifted up his robe so that he can run. The charioteer is like, what is this Hebrew dude chasing my Ethiopian chariot? Also, we're in the middle of the wild. That was weird. But he's joining. He's joining what the Holy Spirit is doing. And sometimes that makes us look ridiculous. And sometimes that makes us act weird. But God has spoken to him. God is already doing something. The Ethiopian eunuch is so drawn to the God of Israel that not only has he left his prestigious and successful work as treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia in order to make a pilgrimage to worship God in the Jerusalem temple, not only has he done all that, he's gotten a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, which was not cheap or easy to get, y'all. And so he's so interested in God that he can't even wait to get home before he cracks that thing open and he is reading the scriptures. And the Spirit tells Philip, go join what I'm already doing. As we used to say in godly play, God is in all times and all places. God is in all times and all places, meaning that anywhere I go, God is already there. God doesn't need us to start the work. The Spirit has already begun her witness of Jesus. The Spirit has already begun her witness of Jesus. You know, uh, it wasn't like this church was sitting around one day and, and somebody said, Wow! You know, the interrelation of colonialism and environmental destruction is just a terrible human tragedy. Let's start an indigenous center for earth justice. That didn't happen. That would be ridiculous, right? The spirit had already initiated the work and just called us to join. And so, so we were at Elahe and, and um, Andrea's working on some dates for us to go out again together soon. Now, in the same way, fam, think about this. That's, that's kind of a, a bigger communal picture, but uh, I think that we do not have to drum up curiosity about God. I think the people in our lives have a real curiosity about God. In many cases, they already do. They've made pilgrimages, some of them. Some of them have read texts. They're curious about Jesus. They're just like many of us were one, two, three years ago, struggling and disillusioned, hurt, exhausted, wandering, wondering, is there a place that can meet my, my hunger for connection with the Creator and with the people God has made? Is there a place where I can bring my spirit and my soul and ask God to meet with me where I am as I am? And church, I believe those folks are out there. Someone may even be coming to your mind as I share. And forgive me, I'm going to call us out a little bit. I am going to call us out a little bit because I think we underestimate the extent to which the Spirit is already moving people to pilgrimage. The Spirit is already moving people to study. We underestimate the readiness of our friends and our neighbors, 
our relatives, our co-workers, our classmates to engage in meaningful spiritual exploration. We underestimate that. And, and, and let me help. This is not an evangelism talk, but in, in, in case outreach and evangelism comes up, and, and they will. That stuff is not about conquest. That stuff is not about winning people over. It's about community. It's about connection. It's about our desire to share something that has been meaningful for us with people who mean something to us. So I just want to ask, are we attentive to the places where God is already moving in the lives of people around us? Because the Spirit calls us to join her there. The Spirit disrupts, the Spirit joins, and the Spirit includes. Verse 37, the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Why does the Spirit disrupt? Why does the Spirit call us to join what God is already doing? Because God loves to include. God loves to include. Love asks, who's missing? Who's missing? Um, I, brought a, I brought a diagram of the Jerusalem temple. Can we please uh, screen share that? Grab that diagram. This is a diagram or a map of the Jerusalem temple that the Ethiopian eunuch would have visited. Now, it was destroyed, tragically, in 70 AD, um, but this is probably what the, what the Ethiopian would have found. Um, kind of in, in the center right, you see uh, that those dark lines, uh, kind of that rectangle shape in the center right. Um, that is where the presence of God was believed to dwell within, you know, behind those walls, behind, behind a curtain in there. And then you can see uh, that altar, that dark black rectangle. That's where sacrifices to God were made. That's where the priests would perform the sacrifices. Um, and so that priest's court or the court of priests, that was a place where only priests were allowed to go. Hebrew priests who were ritually pure. Now, nearest to that is something called the court of Israel. And that was a place where ritually pure Hebrew men could come and worship God by watching what the priests were doing on the altar. Okay, And then uh, just behind that was the women's court, again, for ritually pure Hebrew women. Now, on the outside of those areas, uh, you can see there's, like a, there's kind of like a dotted line, a, a square around the outside, okay? And... What that is, is a railing, okay? Um, and posted on the railing is a warning that any non-Hebrews who cross that railing will be in danger of losing their life. Now, Gentile converts are still welcome to worship God, but they have to watch from a distance from the other side of that railing. And so the court of the Gentiles, that's where any Ethiopians who were convinced of, uh, of the God of Israel and wanted to worship that God, that's where they would worship. But I'm not sure the Ethiopian eunuch even 
gets that far. He's a eunuch, right? So I'm not sure he even gets that far. And go ahead, we can end the screen share. I just wanted us to see that, that image right there. I'm not sure he gets that far. Eunuchs, just a reminder, if, if we don't have Wikipedia open, they're male slaves or sometimes prisoners that were castrated so that they could serve the wealthy in intimate settings and the people they served would not be in danger of sexual consort or assault. So it could be that they were, they were serving uh, a queen or a wealthy woman, um, serving children, a anyone that their owner, their master, was afraid they might express domination over through a sexual act. So they would take these uh, prisoners or sometimes little boy slaves and they would castrate them. It was happening all over the ancient world. It was a common practice. It was a brutal practice. Um, we don't have extensive awareness. We don't have a ton of data about what the life of a eunuch was life. But the little bit that we have indicates that survival rates for that procedure uh, may have been around 10%. Nine out of 10 of these slaves did not survive the procedure. Think about that. As a slave, your life means so little that the person who owns you is willing to harm you in this profound way and this extremely dangerous way for what? For their own power, to protect their own power. So that's uh, this eunuch's life. And actually, this eunuch has made the best of it. He's extremely successful. He's the treasurer of Ethiopia, right? But in the words of, of theologian Willie Jennings, he's only ever able to be the ultimate pawn, right? His proximity to wealth and his proximity to power in that context ultimately mean very little because he's not allowed or able to have a family of his own. And yet he's drawn to the God of Israel so much so that he travels all the way from Ethiopia to get to the temple. I don't know if he got in. I mean, I wonder if someone stopped him outside the gate. I wonder if someone stopped him at the door and quoted a Bible verse at him. Maybe they read Deuteronomy 23.1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. That's oddly specific. It is specifically prohibiting eunuchs from participating in the life of God's people. I don't know if they let him in. But he might also be confused. I mean, he might be confused because maybe, like, he's got the scroll of Isaiah. Maybe he read chapter 56, verse 4, where it says, Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house the temple, and within my walls, the temple, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He might be confused. He might be wondering what to make of all this. I think he might even see himself in the scripture when he reads chapter 53. And this is the text that he talks about with Philip. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before his shearers is silent. 
so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation or who can speak of his descendants? That scripture is not about castration specifically, but it is about an experience of brutality, right? It's an experience of injustice. It's an experience of marginalization that robs you of a future. And the eunuch is reading that text. And, and I think they're thinking, you know, there's someone who shares this experience with me. And so, so he asked Philip, is it the prophet or is it someone else? And Philip shares, hey, hey, you know that place where you're seeing yourself in scripture? You know that place where you see uh, the description, a narrative of someone who is brutalized and marginalized and excluded? That's not the prophet. That's Jesus. That's God who went through that. And the eunuch realizes that God made flesh has joined his experience has joined his experience of marginalization, joined his experience of humiliation, joined his experience of, inclu- of exclusion. And God has now included the eunuch in the most radical of ways by becoming human and sharing his experience. Jesus Christ, himself God, identifies with the pain of marginalization and exclusion and abuse, not in a sympathetic way, but in an embodied way. He doesn't feel bad for those who are marginalized and brutalized and excluded. He is those who are marginalized and brutalized and excluded. That's what it meant when he took on flesh. That's what it meant when he went to the cross. And when the eunuch sees that God and Jesus has identified with him, he says, they wouldn't let me in the temple. (laughs) Do you think I could be baptized? What is to prevent me from being fully included in the family of Jesus? And they get out of the chariot and Philip puts him in the water and speaks the words of baptism over him and then he's gone. But the eunuch has been included. The sign of full inclusion in the family of God. He goes on his way rejoicing. When he came out of the water, his gender identity didn't change. But he was full of God's spirit. And there's no extra wall that he's standing outside of. There's no sign on the railing telling him it's not safe to come in. There's nobody stopping him at the door with a Bible verse to say he can't be near the presence of God. Instead, he realizes the presence of God has come to him. Because the Spirit of God includes. With a hat tip to theologian Willie Jennings, he knows that uh, Gloria Ansualda, Ansaldua, pardon me, would call this a borderland moment, a borderland moment where people of profound difference enter a new possibility of life together in a shared intimate space and a new shared identity. The Holy Spirit would bring us into a shared intimate space and a new shared identity. And this is a a profoundly uh, intersectional interaction, right? 
Philip has privilege that the Ethiopian doesn't have because he's not a eunuch and because he's local and because he's included in the Jewish community. The Ethiopian has privilege that Philip doesn't have because he's a treasurer, he's highly educated, access to wealth and power. And the Holy Spirit would disrupt and, and join and include until people of profound difference share a, a new possibility of life together in an intimate space in a new shared identity. Because fear asks who's in and who's out. And love asks who's missing. How many of those who are missing from Jesus' table, which we're going to celebrate in just a moment, how many of those who are missing are missing because our churches stopped them at the gate or our churches stopped them on the internet, quoted a Bible verse to them and told them that because of who they are, they are unwelcome and unwanted? How many? How many saw us do that and decided they wanted nothing to do with it? And don't you think Jesus would look at those walls, whether we build them with stone or with words, and don't you think he would look at them and say, I'm going to tear those down. I'm going to tear those down if it costs me my own body. I'm going to tear those down if it costs me my own life. There will be no distance between creator and creation. God will come to be with God's people. Because love asks, who's missing? Let's pray. Jesus, your, your desire to lengthen your table doesn't have a limit. Thank you that you modeled that in your life. You modeled that in your death. You modeled that in your resurrection. You modeled that in the witness of your spirit. And I thank you that there is room at the foot of your cross there is room for the ways that we have been told we cannot come in. There is room for the ways that we have been told we do not belong. There is room for the ways we have been told we are not good enough. And you would heal those there. And I thank you that there is room at the foot of your cross for the ways that we have put up signs and said, don't come in. Or for the ways that we have silently and passively accepted those signs and accepted their consequences. Forgive us, God. Help us to be the people who are led by your Spirit. The people who leave things that are good to stand nowhere at all until the Holy Spirit tells us who to join and who to include. Thank you that you were willing to give your life to make this a reality. Give us the faith that we need to follow you and trust you.
in your name, the name of the risen Jesus. Amen and amen.